Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper in BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. We've got a tech-heavy show today. First up, we'll be speaking to Indra Kubitschek. She's Chief Operating Officer and CFO of Kids Code Jeunesse. It is all about teaching kids about, say, coding, but they've launched a new initiative focused on the ethics of artificial intelligence. And then later on, the BIV Tech Panel featuring Progressive CEO Ali Pordat and Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Fakas. We're going to dive into everything from that 996 work system that's being espoused by some tech executives in China to the delayed launch of Samsung's highly anticipated foldable phones. But first, a few events to tell you all about. We want to tell you all about Navigating Canada's LNG Opportunity. There's an event going on April 30th. And then we also have another event May 8th. That's Finding the Best Price and Buyer for Your Business. And then finally, May 22nd, it's Edibles 2.0, talking all about new cannabis opportunities moving forward with legalization. If you want to find out more about all of those events, go to BIV.com slash events. Now let's talk about artificial intelligence. So from the automation of our jobs to the way that computers think about and use our data, maybe a baseline understanding of how artificial intelligence is influencing our lives. I don't know. I think it varies from person to person. But what if we can start teaching children the ethics of AI? Will society have a better grasp on the wider implications of such advances in technology moving forward? With us today to talk a little bit about that, it's Indra Kubitschek. She is Chief Operating Officer and CFO of Kids Code Jeunesse. Indra, thanks for joining us on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So as your organization's name implies, uh, Kids Code Jeunesse, it's helping kids think about coding. But tell me a little bit about this new initiative that you guys have just launched. Yeah, sure. So um, we have launched a new initiative to start teaching uh, artificial intelligence to children. Um, It's a program that's going to be run nationwide in schools starting uh, in the new school year in September. And it's really about uh, helping kids, first of all, understand uh, what artificial intelligence is um, and how they're interacting with it actually all the time. You know, they're the first generation that really uh, doesn't know the difference. So they don't actually know the world before some of this stuff was out there. And how Helping sort of demystify and take away some of the, uh, you know, that it's not magic and actually that there's human beings behind it and and helping them understand the mechanics of how it works as well as, you know, having conversations around the ethics and what we should and shouldn't be doing with artificial intelligence. I think a lot about maybe, say, some of the privacy breaches that unfold. And I always think, oh, this is going to be the end of it for Facebook. You know, everybody's going to have this huge backlash against Facebook. Then I don't really notice society as a whole taking that many more measures against a lot of kind of the problems with technology. Why is it that we should be paying attention to, say, AI in a way that I don't know if mainstream society is right now? How is it going to help with getting kids involved in this conversation from an early age? Well, I think um, one of the things with AI that is really important for, for the public to understand and for kids to understand is that it's really based off of having a lot of access to a lot of data. And, uh, you know, as adults and as children, we don't even realize, like you say, when we're interacting with our phones or doing different things, um, that we're giving a lot of data 
to organizations, to corporations. And, you know, they're using that data a lot of the time in good ways to, to provide us with, you know, targeted information. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lack of knowledge in the public. And we want to, by bringing this forward uh, to young people and getting it, you know, talked about in schools and stuff, sort of bring it forward so people can understand what is going on because it's a space that is moving very quickly. So is a concern the technology itself or is a concern how we approach the technology in the way that some people are using it versus the way some people are interacting with it? I think it's uh, sort of when we're talking about the kids today, um, a lot of it's around, you know, the careers they're going to be in and, and the future of jobs and the way they're going to be working is they're going to be spending a lot of time working with AI systems and inter interacting with them. So a lot of it's just, you know, about preparing people for the future um, and getting them ready to, to, you know, make decisions and, and use AI um, in, a more in a more opportunistic way. Um, there's a lot of benefits of creating uh, systems like this and collecting a lot of data. And so we want to, we want to focus uh, towards helping kids understand how we can use technology and artificial intelligence for, you know, for social change and for good. So maybe give me an example uh, you guys have just announced this initiative. Let's say there's someone in Vancouver, uh, maybe a, a young person, they're interested in doing this. What would kind of be the typical, I guess, education sort of thing that you guys would be providing to them? What would be kind of a, a day in the life of uh, something like this? Yeah, so we're going to be running workshops in, in classrooms. So we would go into, one of our instructors would go into a classroom and really work alongside a teacher to also educate um, educators on how to have these conversations. And it really, really starts, um, we had a few workshops already in Montreal with having an open conversation. So uh, with young kids, you know, they're interacting with things such as Siri and Alexa all the time and asking them, you know, when Siri tells a joke, do they know what's happening? Do they know who that is? And and it's really interesting to see, you know, the, the answers and the responses they have. A lot of the times they think, oh, it's the teacher that's controlling that. Or they think, oh, there's a human being in there. And so we start off kind of having the conversation and then really breaking it down and teaching them, uh, you know, what an algorithm is. And there's, um, we use a system called Scratch, which is a block-based coding system designed for kids. And we can actually help them create a little piece of uh, artificial intelligence through a you know fun and simple project, so that's kind of how we're introducing it in the classroom. What's maybe the typical age of somebody going through one of these workshops? Um, we usually start around seven years old. Um, you know, you can start, we can start some projects as early as, you know, five years old, as soon as kids are, you know, able to communicate and interact with humans and, you know, they can easily start to understand technology. So there are tools out there to help kids from a very early age um, start to de um, decompose some of this stuff. So I'm thinking about at seven, eight years old, that's about the time that my family got the internet. I So I do recall a life, you know, pre-internet. These kids, they don't know anything other than that. So what kind of impact do you think it's going to, technology, maybe in a more general sense, and you can speak to this as your organization is involved with the education of children, but what kind of implications does technology have on, you know, the young people moving forward in a way that maybe my generation isn't necessarily experiencing right now? Yeah, I think um, for kids today, you know, uh, they are the first generation that doesn't know the difference. And they are, um, you know, giving information and interacting with technology all the time. Um, and, you know, they are, they're the first generation that's going to have an opportunity to help guide society and help us decide, you know, how do we want to use artificial intelligence? What, you know, what do we want to allow people to do with it? And what maybe do we think, you know, we don't want to explore? And how can we target it to to give us, you know, a, a better world to live in. And I think that's the conversation we really want to be having with kids. So as part of um, 
the program we're launching in September, uh, we're launching an overall sort of 10-year program called Kids 2030 that really focuses on helping solve some of the global sustainable development goals of the UN alongside introducing technology. So trying to really tie it to, you know, creating better a better world for kids to live in. So I think every single statement I've, I've been making about my own personal life is just aging me at this point. But growing up, uh, you know, you think of artificial intelligence, you think of, say, HAL 9000 from 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's kind of the the uh, typical sort of nefarious sort of AI. But are kids nowadays, are, are they thinking of it as more of a kind of a neutral sort of thing? Are there ideas that maybe AI is not, say, a malignant thing? Is it kind of a benefit to us? How are perceptions of AI right now with young people? Uh, yeah, I think uh, young people are, are really excited to talk about AI and they're really interested and they want to have these conversations. And I think some of us as adults, um, you know, who knew the world before, we're a little bit more nervous and hesitant because um, we feel we should know more probably than we do. Um, but there's there's a real desire and excitement with kids. Um, they're not they're not afraid of it and they find it really interesting. And we really focus on that ability that, to show them that, you know, there's human intelligence that sits behind artificial intelligence, and and they are the human intelligence of the future, and so they are the ones who can create, you know, the magic. Um, and I think that's very inspiring for young people. Well, what strikes you most about working with these young people, uh, just with regards to the way that they approach technology in a way that is maybe different from some of our listeners? Yeah, I think the the number one thing, no matter you know what coding program or physical computing or artificial intelligence project we're doing, kids, um, well, they learn very fast. <laughs> Um, and they um, can really end up teaching the adults really quickly. And, you know, we design our programs so that teachers and parents and educators um, can, you know, adapt to that environment and allow kids to explore a bit further and be creative. So they're definitely not afraid to, to jump into things and to try it. And, you know, they're, they're fearless with, you know, if something doesn't work, let's try it again. And that's a really important skill to have when we're talking about technology. So it's a, a tired anecdote for anyone who has listened to this show for very long, but I, I just keep thinking about how my niece or nephew, they, they grab a tablet. Uh, they're two and three years old right now. and Or I should say, oh, I, I got it wrong. They are one and four years old. I can't get those uh, ages messed up. But uh, they grab a tablet. Everything for them is just absolutely intuitive at a super young age. Is this going to be kind of changing the way that we interact with technology as a society moving forward, knowing how intuitive technology is for young people nowadays? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It's it's shocking how intuitive it really is that a one-year-old can can easily interact with technology. Um, and and it's great, but what we're also trying to do with that is help kids not just be, you know, consumers of the technology, so not just, you know, on the tablets, just constantly playing and, and not really thinking about and realizing that actually they can create the technology. So rather than just being consumers of it, we want to take it a bit farther with them and show them, well, you're actually the, the one who can decide how to create a game or um, you know, when we want to ask a, a questions of artificial intelligence and what kind of questions we want to ask. So rather than just being consumers, they are um, creators. Excellent. Indra, if anybody wants to find out more information, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can definitely reach out to us. Uh, our website is kidscodejs.org, or you can type hashtag kids2030 um, and find a lot of information about us through that. Excellent. That is Indra Kubitschek. She is Chief Operating Officer and CFO of Kids Code Jeunesse. And that's it for this segment. But stay with us. The BIV Technology Panel It's coming up next.
And joining us today on the BIV Tech Panel, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fakas, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Ali, Linda, thank you guys both for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. Okay, so Samsung, they've delayed its foldable, its foldable phone indefinitely. It's supposed to come out on Friday. Ali, were you going to be lining up early in the morning uh, just to get <laughs> your hands on that first foldable phone from Samsung? No, I put this one in the category of the Note 7, the battery uh, exploding Explosions. situation. Uh, and I and I when I read the articles and I realized that they were actually taking a prudent approach to this release, I was pleasantly surprised. And I thought this was the right move for Samsung. You don't want another exploding battery issue and for the whole product to go into the past. It, it, it sort of seems predictable, doesn't it? How does that thing not crack or crease or break on that fold opening and closing so many times a day? Um, I liked the uh, shots of the journalist peeling off the the plastic layer thinking it was a screen protector and then the whole thing just went yeah. kablooey. I, I, do, I do think this has a lot of merits though. And I, I think long-term it will it will work out, but, but it had a very high risk of not working out if they had rolled it out too quickly here and uh, ruined public perception. Yeah, it's just a shame journalists had to be the guys to test it out for them. I don't that. think it's a shame at all. I think uh, it's <laughs> a great the, story. Usually the those, case. <laughs> those journalists. <laughs> well, before we move on, I don't know, what do you guys think? Is it better that they just put this off or do you think they're going to lose a bit of a first mover advantage when we know that Huawei is uh, going to release a foldable phone as well? Well, there's already foldable phones out there. Uh, I think Razer is one of them, and there's there's several others as well. So, this is uh, this is just sort of the the first, I think, obvious foldable smartphone. And uh, and no, I don't think first mover is that important here. I think it's more important to come out with a quality product. I agree with you. First mover's not um, maybe perhaps not a good plan with technology that's as groundbreaking and and frail as this. I don't know how many people are really going to go out and buy it right away. So perhaps waiting for version two yeah. to see as a as a consumer. I know a lot of consumers. I'm guessing are pulling back right now on pre orders and getting refunds and not accepting the first draft. I will keep eyeballing this with uh, a lot of uh, envy for those that are shelling out, you know, say $2,500 Canadian once they're finally hit the mark. It's crazy. Yeah, it yeah. is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And they're bulky. It's you, bulky still. They're kind of a chunky bit it's of It's not going to fit in your back pocket. You're no. not going to sit on that comfortably more than once or twice. It's kind of like yeah. that Zach Morris era of phones that they had uh, way back in the early 90s. It's the, the brick phone. I, I've said this before <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll say it again. It, it's less to do with the hardware and more to do with the, with the apps that they create for it. So if they can come out with some quality reasons for people to be on that foldable phone uh, or foldable device, so, then it may survive the long call. Other than streaming video. Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. I'm thinking more gaming and, yeah. Yeah. and, and content. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of phones, Huawei, they've just released their first financial results. And look, quarter one, 39% revenue growth year over year, reached $26 billion US in revenue, shipped 59 million phones. I bring up these numbers because, well, it doesn't look like Huawei is hurting at all, despite this US-led campaign over concerns about security. Uh, Linda, from your perspective, I mean, does this mean that people just don't care about security? Does this mean that people don't believe the U.S. campaign against Huawei is founded? What's your take based on the numbers that Huawei is releasing right now? My take is Huawei's roughly two pieces, the smartphone world and their other world, which is the, the 5G, some of the 5G technology we're talking about. And I think people are just confused. I think it's a confusing uh, deal that people are wanting to understand. People want security. They want to be safe. They want to feel like this is a technology that's going to make life better. And it's it's a real muddle right now. 
there's a lot of reasons to be confused. I mean, uh, in any other political environment with any other president, I think there'd be less confusion. Yeah. But when he's when you know when you have a protectionist sort of government in the U.S. Uh, coming out with policies like they have against Huawei. Uh, you have to ask the question, is this founded? Is this political? Is this technology? Are we concerned? Is the Chinese government going to look at everything that travels on that um, across that data stream? I, Potentially, we're installing Trojan horses for the Chinese government. This is what people are, are making us fear. Trojan horses for the Chinese government every 500 feet around the world, which is about the distance between the 5G towers. And if that's the case, then what we're saying is Huawei is enabling the Chinese government to look at all the data that travels along that pipe. And that is that means malware, phishing attacks, all of that doesn't matter because there's a, an immediate backdoor to IP, communication, yeah. everything. Uh, that's a concern. I'll, I'll, and I'll make two statements. One is one that I've made on prior shows, and that is that, uh, you know, if if they, uh, you know, this is a slippery slope, right? I mean, they could take and make the same argument for Apple in China and Google in China, because Apple and Google products are in China, and those could be hacked. So there's there's a slippery slope argument here, first of all. The second is, the second is an easy answer to this. They should, if they actually believe that the hardware can be hacked, then I would, you know, they should they should try to prove it. Like they should come up with real, tangible, factual, like set them up. You know, put some sensitive fake data in in you know on 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 a mobile network and see if it gets hacked by the Chinese and then expose them. Like there's there's got to be a way to expose this vulnerability. Trojan horse, the Trojan horse. Yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> Except that why don't we perhaps just let's just lessen our dependence on Huawei and start getting Nokia and Ericsson and everybody else back in the fray. This is a financial decision, right? It's expensive to use anyone. Wa else. So Huawei is uh, is uh, a large partner of Telus's. That's right. Yeah. So again, I I think it's a slippery slope. Uh, you know, again, just thinking about the political motivations. Uh, I know we've talked about this many times. We beat this drum mm -hmm. many times. You know, when you think about the political motivations, the reasons why Donald Trump ha uh, has to uh, be a protectionist, you can see this panning out the way it has very easily. Yes, there has been no factual evidence provided. Well, we've got MI6 and their team over there looking at the technology in the UK saying, well, we're a little concerned, so we're going to strip Huawei equipment out of certain nodes of our 5G network. We've got the U EU saying, mm, let's just take a careful look. Um, but a blanket one supplier fits all on our on the entire 5G network for the planet is, I find troubling. I'd like to see more suppliers in the loop, but I have glue people asking me, where's a safe place to get email from? Is Gmail safe? Can anyone hack into Gmail? I said, well, anything's hackable, but you don't need to worry about someone hacking into Gmail when you're using Gmail. It's Google you're worried about looking at all your stuff, which is what they're doing. Right. And that's what we're worried about in these networks. Okay, guys. If we're sticking around with uh, Asia, let's talk a little bit about Alibaba founder Jack Ma. He was in the news last week, uh, once again espousing the merits of the 996 work system. That's where you work from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. or to 9 p.m. six days a week. Uh, Ali, is this something that you guys do at Progressive here? <laughs> <Absolutely> Personally? <laughs> no, I kid, I kid, I kid. No, we, yeah, this is a, obviously, this is a, uh, Sort of, there's 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 two sides to this conversation. I think he's trying to make a point, but he's not making it the right way. And he's trying to make a point about work ethic and today's, I think, work uh, workforce and work ethic that goes with today's workforce. But he's using the wrong 
uh, solution to as an example. I mean, it's it's very well proven that too much work is not good for your health. Uh, you know, it's bad for your back. It's bad for your body. It's just productivity. Bad for your productivity uh, and 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 many other uh, proven uh, you know studies that have been out there. So I, I think, but his point is about work ethic, and I think that is still a valid point and uh, shouldn't be dismissed. Find your passion by working nine nine six because. Uh, because I, as your boss, tell you to. This isn't this isn't required. I've heard on the um, I've been checking out the GitHub 996.ICU repo, and people are from China yeah. are posting their stories about uh, their horrible experiences at work. Right. Um, and so this is a real issue, and the Microsoft employees sort of coming up against this, and open source developers saying we're not going to license our technology to companies who enforce this policy. Um, and there are other more um, draconian policies, it seems, at work in these, you know, 10107, 007, all these other <laughs> phrases. But um, it, it just reeks to me, I, whether Ma was trying to inspire people to find their passion and work really hard to get it, it seems more to me like as the, you know, Alibaba's entity he's talking about, is that he's got this disposable human culture. Yeah. As soon as you burn out or you have your heart attack or you end up in the ICU, we'll just get another body in here to fix it or take your place and move forward. So I find it very disturbing. That's very, very short-sighted. Disturbing. Yeah, it's yeah. very short-sighted. It's not uh, definitely not a holistic way to think about uh, the growth of your business. Yeah, and it's not just Ma, right? The CEO, Liu, the CEO of JD.com saying slackers are not my brothers is his big quote. Don't you got to work hard to be part of my entity? The whole startup culture in China seems to be falling for this, as the startup culture uh, in Silicon Valley and here does. We talked about this with Rockstar Games and Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, yeah. crunch time hits and everybody puts on the gas yeah. and works really hard, but then crunch time ends. Yeah, I think it's a constant right? battle for employers because yeah. uh, if you check productivity surveys, I, I'm sure over the last couple of decades, most would point to productivity is on the decline. So it's a it's a tricky balance for an employer to, you know, ask for more, but also you you know you you want it to be a healthy more, a healthy yes. for the company and healthy for the em employee. Yeah, I'll just throw this hypothetical though. We did have at least a few Chinese based tech executives come out and say, well, you know, we've eased up on the gas uh, prior moments, and we've actually seen that our revenue has dropped. So I I'm saying, like, what if we see global competitors uh, pick up this model of what for whatever reason? Where does that leave maybe an ecosystem like Vancouver? I mean, are we going to come under pressure for a system that I don't in any way believe will ever fly here? But I'm just wondering if that's going to create some sort of a gap between other you know rival tech ecosystems across the globe. What do you think, guys? I mean, I think every culture is different and has what's you know has qualitative factors that are more important than more important to them than other cultures. I think in Vancouver we have the luxury of a nice lifestyle here. Um, so I don't know. It'd be pretty hard to penetrate that. Um, although, you know, if this ever became a global phenomenon, you know, you, you have to think sometimes the money speaks. It's happened before. A lot of large companies just move to where they make more money. It's happened in the U.S. in the past. I wonder, though, as we see this move with AI coming into the timesheet time tracking world where the AI, in fact, I have an app on my phone that I use that uses AI to track how much I've spent how much productive time I've spent in every app, I'm every website I'm working on. As that starts to infiltrate our daily work life, we're going to see what that pro productivity looks like. I mean, and I perhaps will matter. see big gaps, <laughs> that big four-hour nap gap that can't be added I'll, to the timesheet. Right. I'll leave us on this note, though. But uh, if you look at the data, Japan work uh, some of the highest uh, amounts of no, uh, hours uh, during the week 
some of the lowest productivity uh, in the OECD. If you look at Sweden, you look at Germany, uh, highest productivity, lowest number of hours per week. So right. just one thing to keep in mind there. Guys, thank you both for joining us on the thank program. Thank you. Thank you. That's Ali Pordet, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Focus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends and leave five stars. It's going to help more people find the show. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening. 